please open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 15. If you were to ask my wife, or really anybody who knows me at all, they would tell you that one of the most annoying things about me is that I regularly and consistently lose things. Um, I have a tendency to misplace items regularly. Um, I would like to think it's because I'm concerned with more important things, that my mind is just working on a higher level, just focusing on a, the big, most significant things in life. Uh, but in really reality, I'm just uh, mentally very lazy. Um, I'm forgetful. And this morning, we are going to begin a four-part sermon series through, I think, probably the most famous story that Jesus ever told. Charles Dickens called this the finest story ever written. It's a story of betrayal and a story of loss and heartbreak and redemption. But most of all, it's a story about God's love, His abundant and exuberant and limitless love. You probably know this story by its common title, The Prodigal Son. Every single person in the world falls into one of two categories. You are either lost or you are found. In this parable, Jesus teaches us not about how to find things, but what it looks like to be found by God. So please look now together to the Word of God as we examine the first ten verses today. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So He told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she, loves, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Father God, I come before you today thanking you for every person in this room who has been found by your grace. And Lord, I pray for every person in the room who is currently lost, that they would be found today. God, we are so amazed that when we were lost, you sought us with your Son. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us today to be amazed at your love, and that you would cause us today to be inclined toward you and to hear you and to live for you. Lord, we pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. One of the ways that Jesus often taught was in parables. Now, these were short stories that presented a big theological truth in a very pithy and often very punchy way. And there are several occasions in the gospel when Jesus doesn't just give us one parable, but he will give us a series of parables that work together as a unit in order to reveal the main point of a story. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus masterfully weaves together three stories of something being lost and then being found. And as he does, Jesus is going to draw us deeper and deeper into an understanding of our nature and of his. 
So today, we're only going to focus on the first two of those parables, and then we're going to spend three weeks breaking down the last and largest of these parables into its three main character sketches. We'll first consider the prodigal son, and then the loving father, and finally the ungrateful brother. In today's world, one of the most novel and widespread forms of communication is the meme. If you don't know what a meme is, please talk to Henry Drew. Uh, he will explain it to you and give you a long-form explanation. Uh, but I assume most of you know what that is. It's just an image with a clever saying, usually intended to poke fun at somebody. They're basically the political cartoons of our internet era. But in order to understand a meme, you have to understand its context. For example, many of my friends currently who live in Belarus have been posting memes on their Facebook accounts. And even when I can translate the words into English, I don't understand what they're saying. I don't comprehend what they're trying to get at because I don't necessarily understand enough and I'm not familiar enough with the violations of human rights that are currently taking place under Lukashenko and the dictatorship that rules the nation of Belarus with an iron fist. I'm not aware enough of what is taking place to comprehend what the words are trying to purvey. In a similar way, you cannot understand a parable unless you first grasp the setting of the story. These are the political cartoons of Jesus' day. He is presenting factual information to us in a story manner. Luke does not linger at all in the setting here, so he, I think it's easy for us to just kind of slide past it and take it for granted. Unlike most of Luke's accounts, he leaves the context open to our imagination. But I want you to absorb this event in such a way that you could literally see yourself standing there and looking at these parties that are present before Jesus. So get the picture. Jesus is teaching. It is likely that he is outdoors, as most commonly he was outdoors when he taught. Generally, he was seated, and those who came to him were standing, as most rabbis would speak in that day. People would gather around him as closely as they could. They would encircle him. So in order to be heard, Jesus would seat himself either at the bottom of a hill with everyone seated above, like when he was uh, speaking out in the boat, when he was pressed closely with those at the feeding of the 5,000. Or he would speak when he was elevated so that he could be seen by as many people as possible. So imagine here Jesus is speaking. He is probably seated. He is probably elevated. Imagine him, for example, sitting on the edge of a wall that is part of a building and as he has climbed up onto the roof of a house he has sat down on the edge and he is now sitting there looking down at a courtyard full of individuals and that courtyard is populated with a very particular kind of people in that day it was being filled with what the text calls tax collectors and sinners that's what they have in common now you would be right to acknowledge that all people are sinners, so all people meet this criteria. So it doesn't really say much to us about who these people are, right? Well, not necessarily. I think that even the people who are looking down at Jesus in this text, the Pharisees, for example, they would have acknowledged that all people are sinners. But that's not what the text is speaking about when it says these words. Luke is talking about a particular group of people known as the sinners. He is talking about a category of people in Jewish culture. He's speaking of those who were so out of step with the moral norms of the Jewish faith that they were ostracized completely from society. There are people in this group that would be considered unclean. 
They are ineligible to be near those who would go into the temple. These people were officially removed from any kind of religious gatherings or gathering places. These people would be the prostitutes and the thieves and the sexual deviants and the idolaters, and the list could go on and on and on with the most extreme end of sin in their nation. And the people who were religious said to them, you cannot and must not come near to us. They were joined by the tax collectors. When I was growing up, my father would often tell me that it was my patriotic duty to pay as few taxes as legally possible. And I agree with them. <laughs> um, you don't like paying taxes. I don't like paying taxes. But our system is not filled with the kind of systemic corruption that existed in their day. Their entire tax code was predicated on the notion of self-enrichment. Those who entered into that profession had a lot of authority and had very little, if any, oversight. Not to mention the fact that they were enforcing Roman tributes, which was a betrayal of their people. So get the picture. You have two brothers. One of them is called into the profession of being a tax collector. So he goes to his brother's house and says to him, I would like to have 50% of all of your stuff. The brother has no legal recourse but to give it to him knowing full well that only 5% of that will actually make it up the chain to the Roman government. So some of the wealthiest people in that day were the tax collectors. William Barclay explained the Pharisees' perspective of these people that are listening to Jesus in a commentary when he writes, A Pharisee was forbidden to be the guest of any such man, or to have him as a guest. He was even forbidden, so far as it was possible, to have any business dealings with him. It was the deliberate pharisaical aim to avoid every contact with the people who did not observe the petty details of the law. They did not say there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, but there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. That is their perspective. That is their heart. So you can imagine as Jesus is seated on a low flat roof with his people hanging out below him, the dregs of society listening to him, and then at the very back of the audience, at the very rear of that auditorium or that courtyard, imagine that there is a low retaining wall, maybe two feet high, and just outside of the retaining wall, not desiring to enter in and be around or mingle with those people, stands a group of those who have their arms in their sleeves so they will not accidentally touch one of those who is inside. They have their heads tucked back and their shoulders up and their arms crossed, looking across into this courtyard, seeing these people and thinking so hatefully of the one who would let them gather near him. This is when we hear them grumble these words in verse 2. This man receives sinners and eats with them. This is my fourth favorite verse in the entire Bible. I think it is one of the low-key most telling verses in all of Scripture about the nature of our Savior. He accepts sinners. He accepts you and me. This is good no news for sinners like us. In his excellent book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes, Jesus tells us explicitly who qualifies for fellowship with Him. Quote, all who labor and are heavy laden. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required, he says. I will give you rest. 
The trifold parables in Luke 15 are deceptively complex, mainly because we see this parable cutting in two directions. To those who acknowledge that they are lost, this parable brings joy in the reminder that we have been found. But for those who reject the notion that they are lost, such as the Pharisees and the scribes, there is no joy in heaven over them. Notice verse 3. So he told them this parable. It is evident and without dispute that the them in this verse is referring to and referencing the people on the outside of the gate. Those who were thinking little of those in the courtyard and those who were disgusted at Jesus himself. So although this parable is of great benefit to those who have been found by Christ, it is being used like a serrated blade surgically to describe and call to repentance all those on the outside of the fence who thought that they were righteous. He says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? This is a rhetorical question, of course. But the answer is all of them, all of them, all of them had failed to do what Jesus is speaking about here. None of them had done what Jesus is declaring any good or sane or righteous or upstanding individual would do. Jesus refers to these same Pharisees and scribes in John chapter 10 as hired hands and contrasts them with true shepherds. He says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd does not own the sheep. He sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep, but I am the good shepherd. Those shepherds don't care about the sheep at all. Jesus does. He is juxtaposing here his heart of compassion towards these sinners against their arrogant and self-righteous hearts of disdain for those in that courtyard. Consider that these scribes and Pharisees knew the scriptures very well, so well, yet they could not see that it was being fulfilled right before their eyes. In the book of Ezekiel, the heart of that book is an accusation that God makes against the rulers of Israel. And in it, he shows that the shepherds, as he calls them, are all about themselves at the expense of the sheep. Now, I'm not going to cover the entire prophecy. I encourage you to examine this carefully on your own, but just look at a small portion of Ezekiel chapter 34, starting in verse 7. Here he says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, which is basically God saying, this is the most incredibly significant thing I could say right now. When God says, as surely as I live, he is declaring with his most emphatic statement, listen to me now. He says, surely, because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. What we see happening here is that Jesus' words were designed to serve both as a loving invitation and also a biting rebuke of those outside the fence. 
He is calling them to recognize that their self-righteousness is putrid in the eyes of God. It has produced a life that is filled with hatred and animosity against the very same people they were supposed to be leading to the Lord. But Jesus, unlike those shepherds, lovingly searches out the sheep. Luke 19, we just heard last week. What does Jesus say about his job description? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That lost sheep, that was you. That was me. Verse 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When a sheep is lost and then is found, this sheep is not met with scolding or bitterness or anger or passive-aggressive insults or the silent treatment. The sheep is not forced to walk back on a leash where he is being dragged against his will by a, by a ruthless dictator. He is not brought back in shame with his head hanging low. The sheep is carried on the very shoulders of the shepherd who came to save it. And notice the last word in the sentence. The shepherd walks back with his newly saved creature rejoicing. Consider the attitude of the Savior. Now, we can totally understand why a lost sheep would be rejoicing, why one who was in danger and who has now been saved from the wolves around it would be celebrating. We can understand that. But the, the found sheep's joy does not seem to compare to the joy of the one who found it. It is a mysterious thing to think that God delights in us. This set of parables is designed to help us grow in our astonishment of the God who chooses to set his affection on us, even though we don't deserve it. These parables reveal to us the depths of grace and the depths of love that are to be found in our God. And we see that exuberance becomes infectious as we reach verse 6, which says, and when he comes home, he calls all of his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now hold on to that last part for a bit because we're going to circle back around to it in a moment. But for now, let's just consider and jump forward to the next parable found in verse 8. Jesus says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? For those of you who are mathematically inclined, you're going to notice a pattern start to arise in this chapter. First, there are a hundred sheep, and then it shifts down to ten coins. Finally, we're going to go to one out of two brothers. We see that these categories keep getting smaller, but we also see that there always remains two categories, those that are found and those that are lost. The coin was a silver drachma. It would be about a day's wage. So it stands to reason that the reason for the search is not the value of the coin being so high, but because it had special value to the woman. That's the point that's being made here. In those days, the main way Jewish women received money was as a dowry gift from their fathers. This would remain with them unspent unless there was a desperate need for that money to be used in the case of an emergency. Often it was held with great sentimentality, and it was a constant reminder of the love shown by her parents. The point being, this coin was not valuable because of its innate worth. This coin was valuable because the woman had set her affection upon it, because she loved it, 
So much so that when she found it, she had a party that would have cost her far more than the actual value of the coin itself. Consider verse 9. And when she has found it, she called together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. I, I lose things all the time. Constantly misplacing them. Last night I was looking for my commentaries. I asked my wife where they were. She said, where do you think you put them? And I told her exactly where I thought they were. And it took me a long time walking around, searching for them before I realized I had left them in my car. Yeah, I, I lose things all the time. And you know what happened when I, when I found them? I said to my wife, you know what we need to do right now? We need to call our friends and we need to have a party because I found my commentaries. I actually did say that sarcastically and she just looked at me like, what is wrong with you? I'm preparing for a meal tomorrow. What, is, what, what are you talking about? And then she realized that I was putting two and two together with this sermon. But generally speaking, when I find my phone or my keys, I don't call Luke Palamon and say, Luke, you have to come over right now. I found my phone. Get over here. We are going to celebrate. And when I find my flip-flops, I do not call Joe and Sarah and say, guys, you have to have a party with me right now because I found my flip-flops. I don't do that because I don't have that much value placed on those things. I care about them, but not that much. This is telling us that there is a great deal of value in God's heart placed on us, which should blow our minds. The heart of God is on display in these verses. Consider verse 10. Just so, he says, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You will notice that this is a repetition of the earlier statement that Jesus made back in verse 7. Both of them speak of the joy that exists in heaven when a sinner repents, but the first statement contains a very curious angle that is placed before us. It speaks of those who have no need to repent. Who is Jesus talking about here? Who is it that has no need to repent? Where is this group of people that he is referencing? Here's where we find it vitally important that we read this parable in light of the whole counsel of God. It is not to say here that heaven has no joy in sinless people. That's not what this text is saying at all. In fact, that's patently untrue. In fact, the highest joy that heaven has is over a sinless individual. But it just so happens that there is only one such person who has ever lived. Heaven's highest praises, praises and adoration are centered on the only person who ever meets the criteria he's actually referencing here, the righteous one who is without flaw, Jesus himself. So this is not what is being spoken about. So what is Jesus getting at? You must remember the context. The arrow of this passage is aimed at the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees who are self-righteously standing outside of that gate. He is looking at those people who view themselves as pure and blameless and who are looking down their nose with contempt and disdain for those in the courtyard, and he is showing them that their heart is hard and unlike the heart of God. And by doing so, he is sarcastically referring to them as people who have no need of repentance. People are terrible at self-assessment. We are terrible at self-assessment because we are sinners. We are terrible at self-assessment because we view ourselves very highly. We are terrible at self-assessment because we, have our, we are filled with pride, filled to the brim. Over these four weeks in this passage, the Lord is going to use these parables to help us develop an understanding of who we really are. They function as a mirror. So let's land the plane here with four quick observations to meditate upon from this introduction to the text. First, we all start off as sheep who are lost. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. So perhaps you're under the impression that you're just fine. 
perhaps you're here not knowing Christ and you are suggesting in your own mind that this is for somebody, but it's not for you. That you are not lost. You are just fine as you are. But the scripture is very clear that you are, from the time you were born, lost. You might say, look, I don't even rub shoulders with sinners. I don't even come near to them. I I don't do those wicked things that the world does. I act in such a way that I accord from an outward perspective, at least, with what the Bible teaches. I'm here at church, aren't I? I gave money in the offering plate, didn't I? I said and did these things, have I not? But then you look at the mirror and you assume that you're righteous because of something that you have done. Please understand that nobody ever gets found until they first realize that they are lost. Every saved person knows that they have been lost. Every unsaved person is under the delusion that they are better off without the Lord in some way, shape, or form. They have wandered off like a sheep to their own path. Now, you cannot hear the good news of the gospel unless you know the bad news of the gospel first. You are a sinner. You were born a sinner. You were a sinner by nature, and you have mastered your own style of sinning as you have pursued a life of sin by choice. Everyone starts off as a lost sheep. Secondly, we all start off like lost coins. The biggest difference between the coin and the sheep is the reality of the coin's inanimate nature. It has no ability to move or make any effort in the direction of its Savior. Michael Wilcock explains it this way. He says, the coin is lifeless. It cannot move. It certainly cannot find its own way back like the sun. It cannot even bleat for help like the sheep. Of course, in some senses, lost mankind is not like the silver coin inanimate. But spiritually, from the point of view of the Holy Spirit, it is lifeless. And the coin is an apt symbol of those who see the requirements of God and know themselves incapable of rising to them. Only the all-powerful Spirit can rescue men who, in that sense, are lost. We sang, we were dead in our transgression and sin. We were lost. Your state of being lost is such that you would never be found apart from the work of the Lord coming to get you. The only way that sinners are ever saved is through the effort of the triune God searching out His people. When I was a sophomore in high school, I went to a Christian school, my Bible teacher, we rotated who the Bible teachers were, he was like on two weeks and then off for two months and then back. He said, I want you to read through the entire Bible this year And I want you to find every example of man searching for God. And I also want you to find every example of God searching for man and compare them and see which one is more common. There is not a single occasion in all of the scriptures of man legitimately seeking for God unless God had sought him out first. It never exists. The Father sent his Son to get us. The Son died and rose again for us, and the Spirit draws us and seals us. God searches us out. Without this divine search party, we are doomed to eternal lostness. Third point, if you are currently lost, you need to be found more than anything else that you need. Look, the world is going to tell you you have a lot of needs. Politicians are going to try to sell you that they're going to fulfill your needs. Commercials are going to try to sell you that whatever they are going to get money from out of your pocket is going to 
fulfill that need or that crave or that desire. It will satisfy you. Every single person who is trying to make you happy for some reason or another is trying to convince you that you need them more than anything else. Listen very carefully. The thing that you need most in the entire world is to be found. I was speaking with a man recently who explained to me how he had sat in church for literally years. And he, he wasn't sure exactly how long, but he said, I suggest it was maybe a decade of my life where I was sitting there thinking, I'm not like these people. I'm glad that they have a crutch to live by, but I don't need this. I, he was there for his wife, he said. Little did he know that he was lost. And eventually the Lord opened his eyes to the reality that he was lost. And then he didn't know what to do. And he realized he needed to be saved. If you are here in the room and you have been coming to this church maybe for a long time, maybe this is your first time, I don't know. But if you have been here and you have been unaware of the fact that you were lost and now you have been become aware, the thing you need most is to be found. And the way that we are found is when the Savior comes and get us. And here is the good news. The Savior has come to find lost people. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, departed from heaven. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He walked around on the same planet where you and I operate, surrounded by sinners, just like you and me. Yet unlike you and I, he was without sin, perfectly perfect. And this Jesus, who deserved no punishment, who deserved no death, died in place of sinners like you and me. So that if you who are a sinner merely believe in him, your sin is paid for by his death. And Jesus rose again and lives today to be the savior of anyone who would trust in him. So I say to you, if you are lost today, you can be found. This can be your day of salvation. Next time, next Sunday when I preach here, we're going to look at what that looks like to be found by Jesus in terms of repentance. But for now, all I will say is, do not wait for next week to learn about repentance. Turn now and trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. Fourth and finally, I will say that if you have been found, rejoice in the Lord. It is befitting that we would be along with our Savior who is carrying us on His shoulders, celebrating with Him. Be in awe of the God who has loved you. Be amazed at how boundless His grace has been towards you. The awe of God is the one thing that makes the difference between whether you are going to live a life of worship or not. Are you going to serve the Lord every day this week or not? The one difference is whether or not the gospel is ever before you whether or not your Savior is always before your eyes. If you remember that you were lost, then you will always rejoice that you have been found. When you are constantly aware of the reality that you have been found by Jesus, you will live a life filled with thankfulness towards God. When you are convinced that He is the Good Shepherd who saves His sheep, you will be delighted to stay near Him as He makes you lie down in green pastures. If you are aware of just how much He has done to cover your sin, you then will respond with a heart that overflows with thankfulness and it is displayed by obedience and servanthood toward Him. So I encourage you, found sheep, found coins. Let's rejoice in our Lord this week. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are amazed. Lord, we recognize that you deserve to have our affection set upon you. You deserve all of our heart. But Lord, it is mind-boggling that you loved us, that you would send your Son to die for sinners like us. Lord, it is, it is beyond fathoming that you have such richness of grace towards us, that you have 
not held back. You have lavished it upon us. And so, God, I pray that today for anyone who is discouraged or who, for anyone who is caught up in the trappings of this world, for anyone who is absorbed in all of the political concerns or the social concerns that are very real, but who are being overwhelmed by them. God, I pray that they would rejoice that they have been found, that they would find their identity primarily in being a found sheep, a child of God. And God, I pray that for anyone here who doesn't know you, who is currently a sheep wandering from the fold, who is far from you, who is, who is being sought out by wolves, Lord, I pray that you would rescue them, that you would go after them, that you would find them today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.